Well, we're in a series called Love That Lasts, and the experts have spoken. We have heard from our church's experts on what lasting love looks like, and um, my prayer is that we are challenged and uh, fed uh, by our scripture reading that Candace shared with us here just moments ago. And especially on this Father's Day, uh, may we know the uh, resources that are at our disposal, fellow fathers, as we uh, serve God by serving the families that he's placed uh, in our midst. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But first, this question. How many of you have ever seen a flock of these in someone else's yard? <laughs> How many of you have ever had this flock in your yard? <laughs> right? Pink flamingos. These plastic pink flamingos uh, were invented in 1957 by an artist named Donald Featherstone. Donald Featherstone. And here is a picture of Donald Featherstone with his wife, Nancy. And I've just got some other pictures of them as they have uh, grown together in their marriage of 36 years. 36 years. And in 32 of those 36 years, every day they have worn the same outfit. (laughs) Identical outfits. They match every day. I am not making this up. Even when he's out of town, they will confer and make decisions about what they're going to wear. And to date, they have over 600 matching outfits. Nancy has made every one of them. Every one of them she's made. And someone once asked uh, Donald, well, who gets to pick what you wear for that day? To which Donald replied, the one that gets to the closet first. (laughs) it works for them (laughs) it works for them as they have uh, for their married life lived in what we could call the state of cooperation the state of cooperation we're going to learn about that today Today's message is about what it takes to stay in the state of cooperation. The Philippians 2, chapter 2, state, where Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The state of cooperation. It's a state that goes beyond matching outfits, of course. It's about having your hearts in sync. It's about shared love. It's about a mutual mindset. It's about being in cahoots with your spouse. The state of cooperation. And the state of cooperation is actually one of four states where relationships reside. And this is true in marriage. And it's true in relationships. You may have a friendship. Uh, You may have a working relationship with someone. And of course, you may be married. And I may not know everything there is to know about your particular relationship, but I know this. I know that right now, 
you're in one of four states. And I've already mentioned the state of cooperation. And this happens typically first in any relationship. So what makes it so wonderful in friendship and work relationships, especially in marriage, you know, he says, well, let's just go see a movie. She says, great. What do you want to see? Whatever. I just want to be with you. You know, what do you want to see? Well, you want to see Superman? Sure, I'd love to see Superman with you. Well, do you want to do like dinner before that? Well, whatever. Let's do it. Six o'clock. Absolutely. I just want to be with you. And it's like this person is so very easy. I mean, you get along. It's so fresh. And you can barely get your work done during the day because you're thinking about this person all day long because you're in the state of cooperation. And when you're in the state of cooperation, you don't even mind getting stuck in traffic because you just can think about that person while you're stuck in traffic. And it's okay. It works. When you're in the state of cooperation, even getting your teeth cleaned is sheer bliss because you're just thinking about him or her. It's just wonderful. The state of cooperation, heavenly bliss. And then something happens, right? You know what it is? Someone said to me, first service, marriage. Well, <laughs> well, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, maybe, you know, uh, 1,800 couples uh, were uh, the subject of research in both uh, the U.S. and in Europe, and this state lasted up to two years, this state of cooperation, and... Um, and then something happened. See, the spouse said something or did something. And it's like you're in a vehicle and it jerks off course and an expectation of yours wasn't met. A disappointment occurred. Something was said that stings, right? And you go, what was that? What was that? And at that moment, it doesn't matter how beautiful your, she is. At that moment, it doesn't matter how winsome and handsome he is. It does not matter. That goes out the window. All that's on your radar is that unmet expectation. That's it. That's it. And as a result, you feel hurt, maybe angry, and you become passive-aggressive. Okay? Are you okay? Of course, I'm fine. Fine. You snort, you know. Why should I be mad? And, you know, then he doesn't open the door for her anymore or... He doesn't stand when she enters the room or, you know, you have a headache or you're just exhausted. And just in little ways, you passively punish another person. And at that moment, and you may not even know it, but at that moment, you have just left the state of cooperation and you've entered another state. You've gone from the state of cooperation to the state of retaliation. Retaliation. Now, the goal is to get back to cooperation. That's the goal. That's the object. But in order to do so, something has to happen. A word has to be activated in your relationship. And if it's not activated, if it's not put into play, not only will you not go back to the state of cooperation, you, you won't remain in the state of retaliation either. You'll enter yet another state, and it's the state of domination. The state of domination. And that's a win-lose state. Someone wins and someone loses because in the state of domination, someone's just going to have to be in charge. In the state of domination, someone's going to be the boss. And I wonder, you might, you might uh, explore this next time you're in a restaurant. You see a couple come in uh, through the restaurant 
doors. And it could be either husband or wife, but one of the spouses will walk in, chest held high, proud as a peacock, and then behind that spouse will be their spouse, dragging themselves in, looking like a whipped dog, the state of domination. And in that state, in that state, one spouse is saying, why did I marry you? You changed. You changed. You're different. You're different. Or I should have listened to my mother. Domination. Now the goal again is cooperation. But that requires activating this word. And without this word, and along with the actions that accompany it, there is danger ahead. Because at some point in time, you're going to leave the state of domination. You don't, you're not going to stay there forever. You don't go back to cooperation. You drift into retaliation and then domination. And if nothing changes, then you will cross over to the state of isolation. Isolation. And in isolation, the marriage feels lifeless. You know, you, you may be married, but you're married singles is what you are. You may be married, but you're not partners. And you may even wear the same outfit but you're not in sync. You're not. Cooperation, retaliation, domination, isolation. So I don't know much about your relationship, but I know that you are in one of these states all the time. So I want you to think about that right now. I want you to think about where you are right now. I want you to think about which, which state Does your relationship now reside? What do you think? Hmm. Well, I can tell you what God thinks, and you heard what He thinks in our scripture reading this morning. God wants His people living in the state of cooperation, He wants us living in Philippians 2 2. He wants us to have the same mind, the same love. He wants us uh, in full accord and of one mind. He wants us in the state of cooperation. When relationships drift from cooperation, they return because of a word. Because of a word. A special word that brings us back and keeps us in the peaceful harbor of cooperation. And what is that word? What is that word? Verse 3. Humility. That's the word. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Some of your translations use the word rivalry. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. But in humility, there it is. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility. That's the word. Humility is what keeps us in the state of cooperation. You you see, humility is what we're doing when we take the strength that God supplies, the resources that God supplies, the power that God supplies, and we put the strength and resources and power that God gives us, and we put those toward the good of another person, toward the good of our spouse. That is humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is using 
the resources from God, the resources that God gave us, to treat our spouse as if our spouse was more important than us. You see, that's humility. And let me just tell you what that looks like um, on a very practical basis. And let's start with our church family here. Let's start with our church family. Uh, So yesterday morning, uh, we were in week two of our Habitat for Humanity project. And I want to just catch you up on what's going on here. So yesterday morning uh, here uh, at Ebony's uh, future home, we started last week uh, one, uh, the floor joists were placed. And so we arrived uh, yesterday morning and then began uh, the sheathing, putting on the subflooring. And so spent the entire day. We had a great work crew come together. And uh, Erica Pilashevsky is doing a great job in, in really managing our work crew and our teams. And this is what it looked like at the end of the day uh, before the rains came. And... Um, and so here was our team. What was particularly encouraging is we had just our families, families from our church, said, hey, let's take a day of service and let's use the resources and gifts and abilities that God has given us to, uh, toward the good of another person. And so everybody who was at the work site yesterday knew exactly why they were there. They were there for the good of another person. Who is that person? Well, it's Ebony and her children, and uh, she is the homeowner. And this is not a handout. The home's not a handout. It's a hand up. Uh, So she is purchasing the home, and will have a mortgage, and will be a homeowner. Uh, And because of the resources that God is supplying through his people uh, for her good, why, uh, it is help that truly helps. And I hope that uh, uh, you, your small group, your family will get online and uh, sign up. And uh, we've got probably 12, 13 more weekends uh, uh, to uh, finish uh, this home. God's resources for the good of another. That, that's what it looks like as a church family when we share what belongs to God and what came from God toward the good of another. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, then it should make sense when we talk about it in marriage because in marriage, humility will say to our spouse, I'm going to treat you as having more value than me. I'm going to respect you and defer to you and listen to you. I'm going to extend courtesy to you and kindness to you. I'm going to give you my undivided attention. I'm going to treat you like you are more important than me. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here in chapter 2, verse 3. Count your spouse more significant than yourself. And that means to treat your spouse as someone who's more important than you every day, every decision, all the time. I'm going to take care of you and treat you like you matter more. Humility. It looks like one spouse whose vocation was engineering, who decided to relocate to a university town, so that the other spouse in the marriage could enter a graduate program. And where one spouse worked as an engineer happened to weigh less than where the other spouse could go to graduate school. So he decided to count her more significant than him, and they came and she studied. It, It looks like the wife who supported the job transfer her husband took, even though it would take them both farther from her parents. 
It looks like the spouse who chose to stay in a region of the country, knowing that it would be better for their marriage by being closer to her parents than his. It looks like spouses who spend 15, 20 minutes every day listening attentively to one another as they speak of how their day went. It looks like a husband who cares for his wife as they move into an assisted living facility and he feeds her and dresses her and helps her and serves her. And it looks like the spouse who says, you know, you choose where we eat tonight or you choose our date night activity tonight or you choose where we vacation this year. Well, why don't you choose? I would like nothing more than to please you in this way. And, and sometimes it looks like The other spouse saying, you know what, I'd love to choose, I'd love to make the decision, but I'm all decisioned out today. Really, I trust you. Let's just, it looks like open doors and thank you notes and checking in text messages throughout the day. It looks like a dozen different small acts of deference. And when both, when both husband and wife practice this every day, not as a grinding habit, but as a lifestyle, I'm telling you, it is powerful and beautiful and holy. And it's powerful and beautiful and holy when husbands role-play Jesus as the giver, sacrificer, lover, servant, leader of the family. And it's powerful, beautiful, and holy to see wives role-play the church in supportive encouragement and affirmation. It's powerful. And, and, and here is where I need to be reminded that, you see, marriage serves a higher purpose than just my wife or me. Marriage serves as a window through which the world looks and sees a picture of Christ's love for the church. My marriage is not about me. It's not. It's about Christ. Which means in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when God said in, in, in this lyrical song that was sung, And a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Even in Genesis 2.24, God was thinking of Christ and the church. Even in Genesis. You see, it's broader. It goes beyond our spiritual parents, Adam and Eve. And marriage goes beyond you or me. There's a greater end. Marriage is not an end, and that's my problem. That's my problem. I think marriage is an end in and of itself. The Bible says otherwise. It's not an end. It's a means to an end. What's the end? The glory of Christ. God. Christ. His love. It's a picture. It's a vision of Jesus' love for his people. So if I want to be a better husband, I need to be a better worshiper. Too often we put marriage up as the ultimate to be worshipped, and that guarantees a poor marriage because marriage is not an end. It's a means to an end. And and it takes humility, it takes humility to keep Marriage, the means to an end where I'm using the strength and power and influence and resources that God has given me to put my spouse's needs and concerns ahead of my own. And humility will keep me 
in that state of cooperation. And you may be saying, Randy, are you saying that when you were 22 years old, you fully understood the fact that marriage is not an end but a means to an end? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely not. I just wanted to be with her. She's just so pretty, and I just, I just, you know, let's just have a family together, and let's just hang. That's what I thought. Yeah. And that, for my marriage, absolutely guaranteed the intrusion of two viral rodents that will just nibble and eat away at the state of cooperation. And Paul mentions these rodents in chapter 2, verse 3. We often quickly read by these, but they're there. You see them? Selfish ambition, conceit, chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Some of your versions have the word rivalry. Rivalry or conceit. Let's unpack those words. Uh, Selfish ambition or rivalry. It's a word that originally meant hired hand. And then it morphed into a negative word, mercenary. That is someone who just looks out for themselves. There you go. That's where it is right here in Philippians 2.3. Someone with selfish ambition is someone who simply looks out for themselves. Looking out for number one. I'm going to look out for me. Right? That's selfish ambition. And then... This twin rodent, conceit. And that, that's a word which means empty glory, empty glory. And it describes someone who thinks too highly of themselves. So put them together. When you think too highly of yourself, you're bound to think only of yourself. And when these twin rats show up in a marriage, it can look a dozen different ways. Like, you know, so subtly, you know, going into the family room and leaping for the remote. Controlling the flow of conversation with friends. Pouting so that you can go to the restaurant you want. Arguing too hard to make sure you win. Doing something nice, but being sure that the other notices that you did something nice for them. Not offering to help taking offense too easily, presenting self as more spiritual than your spouse. What about this? Refusing to forget what you say you have forgiven. Or how about this? Being less than candid because you don't want to have the conversation. Or maybe it's being so absorbed in your own world that you wouldn't even think of asking the question, is my presence in your life, healthy or toxic? Hmm. Our marriages will never live in the state of Philippians 2-2 cooperation when selfish ambition and conceit are having their way in the house. It it just won't. When, When two spouses think so highly of themselves that they think only of themselves, there's danger which means a decision has to be made. You've got to choose. You've got to choose between rivalry or humility. And you can't have both. You can't. It's one or the other. And it's as if the Apostle Paul you know, knows what the reader is thinking. Well, Paul, who does that? How does that work? 
Paul says, verse 5, Jesus does that. Jesus is how that works. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I want you to count your relationship with your spouse the way Christ counted his relationship with you. And verses 5 through 11 explain how Christ descended into greatness. When, When Christ appeared, he could have said, you know, I want that palace. I'm God. He could have said that. He could have said, you know, I'd like that army. I'm God. He could have said, I'd like that wardrobe. I'm God. He could have just thrown the God card down. And I mean, he could have, but he never did. He never leveraged who he was for his own benefit. Every room Christ entered, he knew he was the most important person in the room. And in every room he entered, he treated others like they were the most important person in the room. He became a servant. He humbled himself. He chose to submit. He chose to defer. He chose to put others first. He chose to treat others as more important. He had a decision to make. I can either get my way and have no relationship with the people I created, or I can step into their world and I can surrender my rights. I can waive my respect and my glory as God's son, but I can't have it both ways. I can't get everything that's due me at their expense and wave my rights in my life so that by my life they can come home. I've got to choose. I've got to choose. And that's exactly how it is in our marriages, church. I mean, don't kid yourself. You can spend the rest of your life being right and winning arguments but you won't be in the state of cooperation at the end of the day. So what do you want? What do you really want? It's only when both surrender their rights that this most amazing thing happens, that we see the glory of Christ when both surrender. When both husband and wife wake up every day with this question that I leave you with, how can I treat my spouse like he is more important. How can I treat my spouse as if she is more important? How can I love my spouse more than myself? How can I do that? And someone is thinking to themselves right now, Pastor, I don't know what kind of a dream world you live in, but I can't afford to do that. I cannot afford to do that. Uh, And with respect, the Apostle Paul says otherwise. He says you can't afford it. You can't afford it. That's what verse 1 is about. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is... And there is, that's what that, it's it's not a, well, if maybe there might be, no, 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 really the way that's written is, because there is encouragement in Christ, since there is encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, his love, yes, there is. Any participation in the spirit, there is. Any affection and sympathy, there are. You see, You see, you have these things. These are the resources. You have the resources to share toward the good of your spouse. They're there. 
You see, you see the, the problem is that too many of us, well, the problem with me is that I want to use my spouse's resources to love my spouse. That's what I want to do. I come to her with this empty cup and I say, fill this up with love. And she fills it up with love and then, you know, I take it, take a sip and then give it back to her and I call that loving back. That's not loving back. It's not. It's when I go to God and get the love from him and the encouragement from him and the participation in the spirit from him and my affections and sympathy from him. See? So that having come with these things from him, I can then share with her or share with him. Too many of us are looking to our spouse to provide what only God can provide. And when both, when both go to God and get from God what only God provides and then share God's provision, that's that's when Jesus just pops, just explodes. You can see him. So then what does my marriage teach about who Jesus is? And do my children want to become, do, do I want my children to become the kind of spouse I am? Do I want my sons to become the kind of father I am? I want that. Well, if I'm going to God and sharing what belongs to God, extending what I've been given to God and sharing it with my spouse, absolutely. And that is what we call humility. Using my resources and strength and power that I receive from God and sharing it toward the good of another. How can I love my spouse more than me? That's the question I leave you with today. Uh, Ken Sandy has written a wonderful book called The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy. And he tells about the night he and his wife uh, were not in the state of cooperation. They had had such a strong disagreement that they went to bed unreconciled. And this is what he wrote. He said, as we lay there facing away from each other, a bizarre contest developed. Without either one of us saying a word, we agreed that he who moves first is weak. <laughs> he said, I was not going to budge one inch until my wife Corlette moved. And she was just as determined not to move till I did. So, so we lay there like two frozen bodies. He said, I was soon more frozen than I wanted to be. I'd been so distracted when I crawled into bed that I had not pulled the covers up over me. <laughs> and it was winter time. And we usually slept with our bedroom window open. <laughs> So that the room soon was very cold, as was I. But I was so caught up in my stubborn pride that I refused to move and pull up the covers. And after a few moments, I began to shiver and tremble from the cold. Shook the mattress. Corlette felt it through the mattress and slowly turned her head so I could not tell she was moving <laughs> to see what was going on. 
And she understood my predicament in a moment. Her silly, stubborn husband had backed himself into a corner, and he needed help to get out. And so in humility, she surrendered. She surrendered her desire to win this ridiculous contest of wills. And she made the first move. She reached down, and she took hold of the blankets at my feet, and she pulled them gently over my shoulders. And Ken Sandy wrote, in a few moments I was trembling even more, but not from the cold. Her loving gesture had melted my heart, had melted my selfish ambition and conceit. I saw my sin, and I turned to Corlette, and I experienced the joy and freedom that comes from making peace. That's humility. Power from God for the good of my spouse. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for teaching us that uh, the way to win is by losing, the way to lead is by serving, the way to be first is to be last, and the way toward the state of cooperation is through the humility of counting my spouse as more important than me. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you you did this, you lived this, you taught this. You took your resources from heaven and you rescued us and redeemed us and put us in your kingdom. And if it took all of the resources in heaven to be put toward our good so that we could come home to you, I mean, how bad were we then? What a bad, dark state of isolation we were in that it took you, Jesus, coming and entering and rescuing and redeeming. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you that your Holy Spirit indwells your people so that your work can continue through your people and through our marriages to reach our world so that our community would our community would know that you are real, Jesus. By witnessing your people in their marriage, continue to give us resources so that we can share those resources beyond ourselves for the good of others to your glory. And God's people said,